Thank you, Brian. We are proud to have students and alumni like Brian. Please take your Bible and turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. As you're turning, let me express my gratitude just for the opportunity to be here. It is a great privilege to do so. And uh, let me also take the opportunity while you're turning to bring greetings from my boss, Dr. Al Moeller, president of your seminary in Louisville. And I know he would want me to also express thanks to you uh, for your church's gifts to the cooperative program. Every time you give to this church, a portion of the money decided by the church makes its way to the Southern Baptist Cooperative Program. Now, many people are unaware that money first goes to the North Carolina Baptist Convention, and then in the annual session, which is about to occur, of the uh, North Carolina Baptist Convention, the messengers from the churches, like this one, to the state convention, vote on the budget for the state convention. And historically, in most of our state conventions, about half of that money stays in the state for mission work here, and the rest goes on to the sort of central collecting place for the Southern Baptist Cooperative Program, uh, which is contributed to by nearly all of the 45, 46,000 Southern Baptist churches. And then in June, at the annual session of the Southern Baptist Convention, the messengers from the churches throughout the convention, including this one, vote on the budget for the whole SBC. Historically, 50% of that money goes to our more than 4,500 missionaries in 185 countries of the world. We supplement that at Christmas with the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. 25% of that money goes to the more than 5,000 home missionaries supported through the North American Mission Board and the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. And then 20% of that money goes to your six Southern Baptist seminaries. It's a big surprise to a lot of people to know that of all the seminary students in the country, if you add them all up, all Catholic seminary students, Methodist seminary students, all the seminary students of all kinds, one out of five is in one of your six Southern Baptist seminaries, the oldest and largest of which I'm privileged to teach on your behalf in Louisville, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And because of your cooperative program gifts, God can call someone from this church to be a pastor, missionary, biblical counselor, worship leader, and they can get the best seminary education in the world for a fraction of the cost of people in, in many other fine seminaries. I've spoken in seminaries where the students pay 10 times what our students pay at Southern Seminary. For, in my opinion, not as good, a very good, but not as good of an education. Uh, now, the salaries are roughly the same, you know, the electricity is roughly the same, but our students pay much less than students in non-Southern Baptist seminaries because there are about 45,000 churches like this one helping to defray the costs for those students, all of which is to say, thank you for paying my salary. <clears throat> now, normally I would like to take one text, work my way through, through that one passage, but today I'm going to take a biblical topic and see it taught throughout the Scripture. And it's an insight into prayer that made a dramatic difference in my life. And uh, sometimes when people have a discovery like that, they will say, I want to speak on the key to something or other in the Christian life. I don't think God has given us the key to very many things at all in the Christian life. Rather, He's given us a key ring on which are many keys. And this is one of the keys for for prayer that are taught in the Bible. And if you're as I am, you may have known of many of these keys, praying in the will of God, confessing your sins, praising the Lord, and so forth, and sort of try to juggle all of those at the same time. And sometimes that can be a little confusing or frustrating. And I'm not going to speak on a particular part of prayer 
today, but rather more about the attitude as a whole we should have in it, the motive needed for answered prayer. <clears throat> now, right off, I'm sure that no one driving to church this morning said to themselves, I sure hope someone preaches on the motive needed for answered prayer today. But it is something that I think is often neglected to our harm and makes a tremendous difference. We pray differently when we have the biblical motive for prayer. It's taught in John chapter 14 and verse 13. John chapter 13 to 17, these five chapters, a fourth of the entire gospel of John all happened the same night, just within a matter of hours. So starting in John chapter 13, Jesus has the Last Supper. He institutes the Lord's Supper with His disciples. He washes the disciples' feet. Um, he predicts His betrayal, and Judas leaves to go betray Him. He says that all of them will be scattered. Peter says, oh, no, not me. And he says, no, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny three times you even know me. Then he begins in chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. And if it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you that you can be with me, and you know the way I'm going. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't even know where you're going. How in the world do we know the way? And then Jesus made that most despised of all statements in the Bible. Now in the world today, people everywhere despise the claim of exclusivity in John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And as if that weren't plain enough, he reiterates in no one, Regardless of sincerity, regardless of their life, regardless of their religion, no one comes to the Father, Jesus said, but through me. And after that, Philip says, well, Lord, just show us the Father and that'll do it. That's enough. You know, we've heard these stories about our ancestors, Moses, the 70 elders of Israel, they ate in the presence of God and it says they saw God. Oh, oh if we could have been there. We read where Ezekiel, where Daniel had the Lord appear to them and they fell on their faces, dead men. If you would just pull back the veil for a moment, let us see God. We'll be good. Even if you go to heaven, even if you go back and you go to prepare a place for us and you're not with us anymore, if we could just see God, I'm sure that will take us all the way to heaven. He said, oh, Philip, if I've been with you so long, you don't know me yet. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, you want to see God? Look at Jesus. Then he makes a statement in verse 13. And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, just about every time we look at this passage, we emphasize the first half, to ask in Jesus' name. And that is crucial. I've been meditating on that lately and looking at the various times Jesus made promises in the Gospels about prayer and where he refers to asking in his name. And he does so several times, and it's, it's very important. And, and I, I've listed recently six or seven different shades of, of, of meaning behind that. To ask in Jesus' name means to present him and all that he is. It means to come in his righteousness, not our own. It means to ask on his behalf for the sake of his kingdom and his concerns. and It means to ask what you think Jesus would ask 
if he were praying in your situation. It is crucial to pray in the name of Jesus. And did you know you can end your prayer by saying in Jesus' name and not actually pray in Jesus' name? And you can pray in Jesus' name and not use the words in Jesus' name. Amen. It's more of the spirit behind our prayer and, and the, uh, the faith we come in that prayer. I would encourage you in a very practical sense. And one way to keep that phrase from being just an empty tag phrase at the end of our prayer is just make sure you articulate it clearly. In other words, don't end your prayer by saying, in Jesus' name, amen. Frankly, a lot of people do that. Listen to your prayer through the ears of someone for whom English is a second language. And they're listening to you pray and they're, they're able to catch up with most of what you're saying. Then you come to the end of your prayer and they hear an English word they've never heard before. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, I know. I don't, I don't know that word they said before that. Well, when you say it like that, it's a routine. You're probably not praying in Jesus' name. You're just saying a phrase that you've condensed into just some multi-syllabic collection there. We want to pray in the name of Jesus. It's very important. But that's not what I want to emphasize today. I want to look at the second half of this verse. Look at it again. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. Why, Jesus? Why will you do it? So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. In one sentence, everything I want to say in the sermon is this. The motive of our every prayer should be concerned for the glory of God. The motive of our every prayer should be concerned for the glory of God. And that probably didn't sound as revolutionary as you might have been led to believe by the previous few minutes. And yet I think it's something that we have neglected to our loss. But it has been known to the great men and women of prayer in the past. One writer on this verse said this, That the Father may be glorified in the Son. It is to this end that Jesus on His throne in glory will do all we ask in His name. Every answer to prayer He gives will have this as its object. Where there is no prospect of this object being obtained, He will not answer it follows as a matter of course that this must be with us as with Jesus. The essential element in our petitions, the glory of the Father must be our aim and end, the very soul and life of our prayer. In other words, the motive of our every prayer should be concerned for the glory of God. Now, did you notice how that writer said it must be with us as with Jesus? the motive of our prayer. And that's where I want to begin. My first point is that the, the, the glory of God was the motive of Jesus' whole life. And then I'm going to go from that to, if that was the motive of his whole life, then certainly it ought to be the motive of our every prayer. Arguing from the greater to the lesser, if the whole motive of Jesus' entire life was his concern for the glory of God, it should be the motive of our prayer. So let's look first at that, how the glory of God was the motive of Jesus' whole life. We're going to see it in three ways. First of all, in his own relationship with the Father. What drove him, what dominated in the relationship of Jesus the Son with 
God the Father was his concern for the glory of God. We're going to see this just in the Gospel of John. If you go back to chapter 12, verses 27 and 28, in his last words to the general public before his crucifixion, Jesus says this when he realizes that the time has come. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Chapter 13, verses 31 to 32. This is right after they finished taking the supper together. Judas has left to go to the chief priests and Pharisees to betray Jesus. Therefore, when he went out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. And frankly, that's a little hard to follow with all the pronouns there, but what is clear is that the motive in this relationship and the thing Jesus was concerned about was the glory of God. Then over to chapter 17, verse 1. This is just a little later, perhaps less than an hour later, the same night. <clears throat> perhaps as Jesus prays the prayer that comprises John 17. As he's praying, Judas, the chief priests, with their torches, going down through the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives on their way to arrest Jesus. And sometime at that point, the disciples hear Jesus pray this prayer known to us as the great high priestly prayer of Jesus, who spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. In his own relationship with the Father, Jesus was compelled by the glory of God. But we also see it in his teaching. If you look in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, where Jesus says why he wants us to live out the gospel. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Live out the gospel. Live like a Christian in the sight of the world. And that will bring glory to God. People will say, what happened to him? How do you explain her? God did that. That brings glory to God. So Jesus said, live out the gospel and bring glory to God. Then in the next chapter, chapter 6, verse 9 through 13, this is the model prayer, sometimes called the Lord's Prayer that he gave us. This is particularly significant because in his teaching about prayer, Jesus emphasized the glory of God both at the beginning and at the end. He begins it by saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your name be hallowed. Your name be glorified. Glory to your name. That's how he started. How did he end? For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory for and ever and ever. So when he taught the model prayer, the beginning and the end of that prayer was concerned with the glory of God. It ought to be the motive of our every prayer. And then third, we see in the ministry of Jesus, what he wanted to result from his ministry was concern for the glory of God. We could go virtually any place in the Gospels. Let's just look in the Gospel of Luke. First of all, let's see it in Luke 5, 24. <clears throat> this is the story of the time when Jesus was surrounded by people 
But some friends of a paralytic man wanted to get him to Jesus for healing, so they cut a hole in the roof, lowered him right down in the presence of Jesus, who said, Son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees are aghast at this, that anyone would say that their sins are forgiven when God alone can do that. Verse 24, But Jesus said, you, So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately he got up before them and picked up what he'd been lying home and went home, here it is, glorifying God. They were all struck with astonishment and began doing what? Glorifying God. That's what Jesus wanted to happen. And they were all filled with fear saying, we have seen remarkable things today. Luke 7, verse 15. Jesus and his disciples are walking past a little village called Nain. And as they do, a funeral cortege comes out of the gates. And the men have on their shoulders the coffin containing a young man who is the only son, the only child of a widow. Jesus comes up and touches the coffin. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all. And they began, here it is, glorifying God saying, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. That's what he wanted to happen. That's why he did this, so that God would be glorified. That motivated his whole life. Then Luke 13, verses 12 and 13. This is the scene in the synagogue where Jesus sees this woman bent double. And he calls her over. Verse 12 says, when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you're freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. That's what he wanted to happen. But I think my favorite is Luke 17, verses 17 and 18. This is that famous story where <clears throat> there are ten lepers. And because they were lepers, had this contagious disease, they had to live apart from everyone else. And if they came near anyone, they had to warn them by shouting, unclean, unclean. But if they came to the point of believing they had been healed or cleansed of their leprosy, the people tasked with the job of evaluating them to see if they could return and could formally pronounce them as acceptable again in the society or not were the priests. So they asked for Jesus' mercy, and he says, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, as they were obeying, it says they were cleansed. And they looked at themselves, and they're cleansed, and one of them comes back. And it's the one you'd least expect. It was the foreigner, the Samaritan. Now, the time of the year we most frequently hear this is Thanksgiving, isn't it? And I think that's appropriate. And yet, if you look at the text, there's not one mention of gratitude here, not one mention of thanks. That wasn't what Jesus was concerned about. Notice what he was concerned about. Luke 17, 17, Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine. Where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? That's what concerned Jesus. He wasn't concerned that he wasn't thanked. Jesus wasn't upset saying, I tell you what, I performed this miracle for these 10 guys. I cleanse them of this impossible disease. And do they come back and thank me? No, they do not. This bunch of ingrates, I am really chapped. That's not what concerned Jesus. That wasn't his motive for wondering where they were. He says, were there not ten cleansed? The nine were they. Was no one found who returned to give glory to God? God is being robbed of nine-tenths of the glory. He deserves here. That was his motive. And then Luke 18, verse 42. 
And Jesus said to this blind man, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight, began following him, doing what? Glorifying God. That's what Jesus wanted to happen. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. The motive of Jesus' whole life was his concern for the glory of God. In his personal relationship with the Father, in his teaching, in his ministry, what drove him was concern for the glory of God. And thus, the motive of our every prayer should be concerned for the glory of God. If that was the driving force of Jesus' entire life, it ought to be the motive of our every prayer. So go back with me now to John fourteen thirteen, where we started. And let's look at that verse again through the lens of all these passages and stories we've just seen. John fourteen thirteen. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. Why, Jesus? Why will you do it? That the Father may be glorified in the Son. That's his motive. For God to be glorified. I came across the story of a man who prayed like that. He lived in Switzerland in the latter part of the 1800s and early part of the 1900s. His name was Samuel Zeller. He was visited by a godly Norwegian seminary professor named Ole Hallesby. And Hallesby records this story in his book simply entitled Prayer. Hallesby writes, I do not exaggerate when I say that I've never heard of anyone pray as he did, although I've heard many who were more emotional and more fervent when they prayed. Zeller, on the contrary, was quiet and confident while he prayed. He knew God well, and for that reason, he was confident. I do not believe that I've ever heard anyone expect so much of God and so little of his own prayers as he did. He merely told God what was needed. He knew God would take care of the rest. His prayers were reverent but natural. Conversations with God as though God were sitting in the first pew and Zeller were standing before him. Thus he prayed every day for many people and for many things. But as I listened to these prayers of his, I had to say to myself, after all, he prays only one prayer. Namely, that the name of God might be glorified. Oftentimes he prayed for miracles, but never without adding, if it will glorify thy name. Nor was he ever afraid to pray for instantaneous healing, but always with the provision mentioned above. He made no attempt to dictate to God or to force him by his own promises. For that reason, he would often say, listen to this, if it will glorify thy name more, then let them remain sick. But if that be thy will, Give them the power to glorify thy name through their illness. Let me repeat that. You think of someone like Johnny Erickson Tyler. If it will glorify thy name more, then let them remain sick. But if that be thy will, give them the power to glorify thy name through their illness. Here, concludes Hallisby, here the purpose and meaning of prayer dawned upon me for the first time. Here I was privileged to see more clearly than ever before the purpose of prayer, to glorify the name of God. The motive of our every prayer should be concerned for the glory of God. And that's how it's always been. Back in the Old Testament, if you go to 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 36 and 37, this is the famous encounter with Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. 
Baal worship, idolatry, had predominated in the land. The true worship of the true God had been in decline. And so Elijah is emboldened to have this great challenge with the prophets of Baal, 400 of them on the top of Mount Carmel. I'll build an altar, you build an altar, we'll both pray the God who answers by fire, he is God. Sounds like a deal, they said. So they dance around their altar all day long, nothing happens. Near the end of the day, they start cutting themselves, supposedly showing the sincerity that they had to their God who never answered. They even knocked down the altar of Elijah. But late in the afternoon, he rebuilds the altar. He completely soaks the thing repeatedly with water, so much so that there's a little trench around there that's filled up with water. And then he prays. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. And I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O God, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back again. Answer me, Lord, by fire as he did to glorify your name, to exalt you as God in the sight of all these people, far above the false God that they worship. Answer my prayer to glorify your name. King David knew this too, Psalm 37, verse 4, another familiar passage. Have you noticed that all these are famous verses? It's interesting how you see them now all tied together in the view of Concern for the glory of God. David said, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. If when you pray, when you pray for your own life, your own concerns, as you ought, and that's natural, when you do so, if you'll delight yourself in God above all, more than what you want, more than your life, if your greatest delight in prayer is to, is to glorify God, to experience God, if he is first and foremost, not your needs, not your wants. He'll give you the desires of your heart. It's the same in Psalm 79, verse 9. Interesting verse because it contains probably the most generic prayer we ever pray and the most frequent prayer that we pray. But notice in both of them what the motive is. Psalm 79, 9. Help us, O God of our salvation. That's the most generic prayer we pray, right? Lord, help me get up out of bed. Help me get up this morning. Lord, help me get there on time. Lord, help me know what to say. Lord, Lord help me get through this. All day long we pray that, Lord, right? Help, Lord, help me, help me, help me, help me. Well, why should he do that? Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. And deliver us and forgive our sins. Perhaps the most frequent prayer we pray, Lord, Lord forgive me, please forgive me. Oh, why should God do that? For your name's sake. The motive of our every prayer, even if it's just help me get up, help me get there on time, everything should be the glory of God. What a tremendous difference it makes. Not only giving us more peace and rest, but even more boldness to pray for some things we otherwise would be afraid to pray for. This happened in the case of the famous reformer of the church, Martin Luther. In 1540, his uh, dear friend Frederick Myconius became deathly ill, and both Myconius and those with him thought that he was about to die. So one night he wrote in a trembling hand his farewell letter to Luther, whom he loved very much. 
And after he received this letter, Luther wrote back the very Luther-like reply immediately. He says, I command you in the name of God to live because I still have need of you in the work of reforming the church. The Lord will never let me hear that you are dead, but will permit you to survive me. For this I am praying. This is my will, and may my will be done. Because I seek only to glorify the name of God. Myconius had already lost his ability to speak by the time Luther's letter arrived, but sure enough, he survived six more years and outlived Luther by two months. Quoting Hallisby again, nothing makes us so bold in prayer as when we can look into the eye of God and say to him, you know that I'm not praying for personal advantage, nor to avoid hardship, nor for any will of my own, but only for this, that your name might be glorified. The motive of our every prayer should be concerned for the glory of God. But what is so often our motive? Well, turn painfully to James 4, 3, where it's revealed. Why is it that we pray as rightly as we know how? We pray what we believe to be the will of God. We praise the Lord. We confess our sins, and still our prayer isn't answered. James says, well, one reason you don't have because you don't ask. What I've been asking. Well, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now, that last part about your pleasures, it's insightful to emphasize both words. You ask and do not receive. You ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your pleasures. Just for your pleasure, luxurious kind of request. But it's also insightful to emphasize the other word. You ask and do not receive. You ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your pleasures as opposed to whose? God's pleasures. You're right to pray about your life. But you can do it with a concern mainly that's horizontal. It's yours rather than to glorify God. Now, with that standard of measurement, we can pray for most good things with the wrong motive and a prayer not be answered. You can pray for someone to be saved, and you should. That's right. That's good. Keep it up. But you can pray for something good like that with the wrong motive. You might pray for someone to be saved because it would make your life easier if they were. You can pray for revival for your church, but really because it would make your church famous and grow your church rather than making a name for Jesus. We can pray for the right things with the wrong motive and our prayer not be answered. I have my students read the biography of George Mueller, considered by many the greatest man of prayer and faith since the time of the New Testament. George Mueller said, As the great root of sin is self and self-seeking, so there's nothing that even in our spiritual desires... Those things you ought to desire for someone to be saved, for revival in your church. There is nothing that even in our spiritual desires so effectively hinders God in answering as this. We pray for our own pleasure or our own glory. The right and only motive for answered prayer is concern for the glory of God. Let me wrap this up with five practical statements here. They all begin with, Praying with concern for God's glory is our motive. Number one, praying with concern for God's glory is our motive. Will sometimes be difficult to do sincerely. You can say the words, but not sincerely mean God be glorified. 
a couple of reasons for that. One is I hope you will continue to pray for many of the same things because it's right to pray for them. You can pray for someone to be saved, but rather than now your motive being, well, Mom, it'd be easier for me if they were, to pray the same thing with a new motive, it has, takes conscious effort. But perhaps more importantly, the reason why it's hard to do sincerely sometimes is that quite often we pray and we're dominated by personal feelings. And it's not wrong to be so dominated. It's not selfish. It's just natural. My wife is traveling today. If I got a message that she had had an accident, she was in an emergency room somewhere, and her life was in the balance, I'm going to pray for her to be spared, and I'm going to be dominated by personal feelings when I pray that. And it would be inhuman of you to think I should pray otherwise. I can't step back and just objectively pray with some neutral motive that she be spared. I love her. She's my wife. I pray I'm going to earnestly plead God spare her life. And yet even then, my greater motive should be that God be glorified. Illustration, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You and I will never want anything more than Jesus wanted to avoid the wrath of God. He sweat great drops of blood he so wanted to avoid the wrath of God. Infinitely more than we do. He knew what that meant. He knew what it would mean to endure the wrath of God. And in his humanity, he sweat great drops of blood. Oh, Father, if there's any other way, any other way. And yet, your will be done. I want what you want. I want to glorify you more than I want to avoid your wrath. That's, that's hard to say. But I acknowledge that what I'm talking about is hard to do. Sometimes it's hard to do. doesn't mean we have... No feelings. Oh, we can't help but have strong feelings in some of the things we pray for. But even then, we should say, my greatest motive is for you to be glorified. You have to decide that before you get in the moment, before you get the call from the emergency room. It's like a single person saying, I'm not going to date an unbeliever because I'm not supposed to marry an unbeliever. And you have to make that decision before you become enamored with an unbeliever. And your emotions take over. You don't try to make a logical decision when your emotions have overwhelmed you. You've got to make that decision in advance so that the truth wins out over emotion. And we have to do that with the glory of God to say as much as I want this particular thing, what I want more than that is for God to be glorified. Which leads to the second one. Praying with concern for God's glory is our motive, is a reality. You know you really mean it. When we're willing for God to withhold the answer we want, if that would bring Him more glory. If you can say, Lord, I want so much to be married. And that's right and normal to want that. But I'm willing to be single if that would bring you more glory. If you're willing for God to give you just the opposite of what you want, if that would bring Him more glory, you know you really mean it when you say you want God to be glorified. Third, praying with concern for God's glory as our motive is just as valid in praying for ordinary little things as big things. <clears throat> Thus far, I've just talked about big things. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, my wife in the, in the emergency room, 
whether you remain single or get married. But, you know, most of life, thankfully, is not crisis things like that. Most of life is ordinary, little things. Even then, if it's big enough for you to pray about, you should pray with concern for God's glory first and foremost. Just as we saw, help us, O God of our salvation. No matter what we pray help for, we should pray for the glory of His name. Lord, I, I can't find my keys. Help me find my keys. If it will glorify Your name. <laughs> maybe He doesn't want you to go. Or maybe He's delaying you so you won't come to that intersection at just the wrong moment and be hit and have an accident. You don't know. Pray that God will help you find your keys when it will glorify Him. Lord, it is raining cats and dogs. Help me to find a parking place right up front. That's well, not wrong to pray that. But pray for if that will glorify him because it might bring him greater glory for you to have to go to the back of the parking lot and as you're walking in through the rain, you're going to have a thought that's going to change your life. And you wouldn't have had that thought if you'd rushed right in. Or you may have a divine encounter with someone. You may meet someone in that parking lot. It changes your life, changes that life. And it wouldn't have happened if you'd had a parking place right up front and rushed right in. You don't know. So even playing for, a parking, praying for a parking place, anything, the ordinary little things, pray that God be glorified. Fourth, praying with concern for God's glory is our motive, gives us words to pray when we don't know God's will in a matter. You don't know what to pray. Here's something you can pray, and it's always God's will to pray it, that God be glorified. I don't think God reveals His will in a lot of the things we wish He would. And I, I'm not big on advocating for seeking for some mystical voice from God. I think often he just does not reveal his will. <clears throat> that, and in those cases, we're free to say what we want. Lord, I, I pray this person will be healed if it will bring glory to your name. If we know what we're praying for is, is not sinful, then we can pray for whatever we want. If he's not revealed his will, Lord, I pray that you would spare their life if it would bring glory to your name. So, a person's deathly ill, is this the time God's going to take them or is he going to perform a miracle and heal them? I don't think he tells us that in advance very often. So you're free to pray that God would heal them if that's your desire. It's not wrong to say, I want this person to remain alive. That's a good thing. You love them. But we acknowledge we don't know all that God knows. So, Lord, please, if, it, if it's possible, please let them live. But more than that, I want you to be glorified. But you can always pray in every situation for God to be glorified, and you know that's his will. You ever had someone come up and pray to you and say, Hey, I want you to pray for me. I've met someone. I want you to pray that we'll get married. And you're thinking, I don't know that they should get married. Someone says, hey, I've got a job interview tomorrow. Pray I'll get that job. And you're thinking, man, I don't know. I don't know if you ought to be working there. Or I don't know if they ought to hire you. And they want you to pray right now. You can always pray for God to be glorified. So you, you don't know what to say. You can always pray, Lord, I don't really know what your will is here, but I do know this. I want you to be glorified. And finally... Praying with concern for God's glory as our motive will bring more peace and more rest into our prayer.
The Westminster Catechism, published in England, August of 1647, is the most famous Protestant catechism. And it begins with that great question, what is the chief end of man? What's our purpose? Why did God make us? What is the chief end of man? And that unforgettable answer comes, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So in the same way, the chief end of every prayer is to glorify God. The Bible tells us, so then, whether you eat or drink, if, when this is over, and I go grab that cup of water, after the service, take a drink, even something as insignificant as that, as small as that, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, says 1 Corinthians, do all to the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, let us ask all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that we can come and pray in any sense through Jesus and what he's done. Through the life and death of Jesus, you've opened the door of heaven and we may come. And I know it's your will to pray that Jesus would be exalted in our sight right now so that he would be breathtakingly, irresistibly beautiful to every person here. We want to run in our hearts to him. Oh, bring glory to yourself by exalting Jesus before us and bringing people to yourself. Bring glory to your name by raising up a great praying church here at Providence. Bring glory to your name by bringing much fruit of this message in the prayer life of every believer here. Cause us to want to run in our hearts to you through Jesus. For we pray in his name and for your glory. Amen.